So I hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, reading verses 49 through 53. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. May the Lord explain this this, uh, most confusing for some, but deeply profound word to us this morning. Let's ask him for that. Lord, we need your guidance. We need your illumination. And I especially need your words to uh, overshadow mine, that my words would indeed be the words that you want me to say, that I would be clear and concise and uh, being able to illuminate what Jesus is talking about here and put it into the setting of the world in which we live. And I pray that you will bless the understanding, even if I, if, if I fall short in my words, that your spirit will interpret these words and apply it to the hearts and minds of those who are listening. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Pretty much ever since I've been a Christian, I've been hearing people say things like, doctrine divides and love unites. And basically that argument is that we should stop studying doctrine, we should set it aside, and we should all simply love each other, and that that way we would get along. But unfortunately, I think that the kind of love that that speaks of is that shallow, sappy, sentimental love that we find in the culture around us. I've been getting a kick. I don't know if you've paid attention to the football playoffs uh, that are going on right now, but I've been getting a kick. I don't know if all the teams have this, but most of the ones I've seen, they have this this little slogan on the back of their helmets, be love. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means, to be love. I think it means to, you know, love everybody. But then with that on the back of their helmets, they go out and they curse each other. They hit each other. They do late hits. They do everything they can do to annihilate each other. Be love? Right. That's not the kind of love that I think that the church needs to have. And unfortunately... I fear that it has crept into our understanding, that sort of vague love, everybody and everything. I've also heard people say since I've been a Christian that, well, Jesus came, he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. You know, he was more like me than he is like you. You're being judgmental of me. Jesus would never judge me. He was completely tolerant of my sins. He wants me to be happy. He condones what I do. He even seemed to delight in it. Well, people who say that obviously have never read the Gospels. They, they've, they've never seen what Jesus actually does say, and they've also never thought deeply about what a God who condones sin, what that says about God and his righteousness and his holiness. Well, I've also heard it saying, and usually from pulpits, from very popular preachers who have great followings, 
that all that we really need to do as a church is just to drop our dogma, set it aside, to be more inclusive, to love everyone, to accept diversity of morality and diversity of all kinds, and that basically then we will be closer to the teachings of Jesus, that love wins, and that the, the, the church will become relevant and will fill our pews. Well... I, I, I study the scripture, especially the Gospels, and I don't see those words in Jesus' mouth. In fact, I think that Jesus talks about the love of the culture, the love of the world around us, far less than even those of us here might realize. So I did a little exercise. Now, this, let me tell you right off the bat, this is not scholarly at all. All I did is I did a search in my English Bible, the ESV, for the word love in the Gospels, all right? And it's not scholarly. I'm not talking about every single reference to love. I'm just talking about the word love and all of its derivatives. And I found out that there are 66 verses in the Gospels that speak of the word love. Now, if you go into those and look at them and eliminate all the verses that simply talk about love in general, that talk about the love of God for us or us for God, the love of money and various and sundry different things. If you take that out and you only leave the ones where there are discussions of humans loving humans, it whittles it down to 20 verses, 10 in the Gospel of John, which is the Gospel of love, so-called. Four in the Gospel of Matthew, four in Luke, and two in Mark. Well, if you take those ten that are in the, the Gospel of John, and you look at the, the, the way that he speaks of love, very, very straightforward. Jesus teaches love, but it is without exception love amongst the body. It is love, a unity that exists within disciples, within the body of Christ. Not one single one of his verses actually talks about love outside of the body. That leaves ten in the synoptic gospels. Of those ten, four are actually quotes from the Old Testament. Jesus summarizing the the Ten Commandments that we just read. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. No discussion about tolerance. No discussion about condoning sin. No discussion about inclusiveness. So we can take those out. That leaves six. None in Mark. Three in Matthew. Three in Luke. And they happen to be parallels. In other words, it's all Sermon on the Mount. So really, there are three verses in all of the Gospels that actually say, love your enemies. You, have, you, you know the verses, very famous. You, you say you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I tell you, love your enemies. Because what good does it do if you just love those who love you, love those who hate you? Okay? So, my point is this. Now, don't get me wrong, please. I'm not saying that Jesus did not teach us to love outside the body of Christ. He did tell us to do that. I'm not telling you that Jesus said that we should not love the the lost and have a heart for the lost. No, he did that. But when he talks about our love for the culture outside of of, of the church, it is not to tolerate that sinfulness. It is not to condone it. It is not to join in or to look the other way. It is the process of changing. It is conversion. 
It is a desire to see those who are lost in darkness come into the light. To those who are, are lost in their own sinfulness to come into the blessing of Jesus Christ. Never are, nowhere in the gospel does Jesus say that we should tolerate sin. That we should condone sin. That we should simply look the other way when it happens. In fact, it is far the opposite. Jesus talks a tremendous amount as far as the judgment and the warning of hell and things like that. And all you have to do, seriously, is go back and read Luke 11 through 13, right where we are. Go back and read chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. Go back and read John 3, actually, the great love chapter. Well, it's just as strong about those who reject Jesus are condemned already. So in other words, here's what I'm saying. Is that the, the, the love wins people, the people who want to talk about the church, what we're really supposed to do is just simply to love the world without ever noticing the sinful nature of the sin. That is not the love that Jesus talks about. They forget the concept of judgment that leads to division, that leads to unity. Three ideas that Jesus expresses clearly in our discussion for this morning, but that really defines the entire redemptive plan. It was never to leave people in their sinfulness. It was always to pull them out of the sinfulness. And if the church doesn't realize that, we are not doing the sinful culture any good. In fact, we are doing them a horrible misservice. That is what we're going to see as Jesus says these very difficult words to comprehend this morning. Now, This idea, I love the way that Luke has developed the themes that he's been developing. If you haven't been here, Luke, his themes are kind of like the ebb and the flow of the tide. You know, they'll come in and he'll deal with them a while and then they'll ebb away just a little bit for a while. And then he brings them back into the forefront. Themes like sanctification through the means of grace. We saw that ebb a little bit and now that's going to come back in play. Themes like... Like the, like the cosmic initiative, Jesus coming, and the reason that he came, the objectives to destroy evil, not to make alliance with it, not to make an alliance, not to tolerate it, condone it, or to take pleasure in it, but to destroy evil. That's what he came to do, to seek and save the lost. He never came that the lost could remain lost and say that it's okay for you to be lost. He came to seek and save the lost, to pull them out of the darkness into his light. So that's going to be coming back to the forefront. And all through the different themes that we've been discussing over the last several months, Jesus has been getting closer and closer to the idea of division that we're going to talk about this morning. When he talked about the, the, to his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he really had harsh words to say to the Pharisees and lawyers. That was to draw a distinction between the way that his disciples should act in the way that the rest of the world act. When he said, you must profess me before men or I will deny you before my father. That literally is dividing the world into two groups, those who will profess him and those who will not. Even lately, when we studied these two servants and the idea of servanthood, even in that discussion, there's still the discussion of separation, of division. Because one of those servants was a faithful servant who would be greatly blessed by his master, and the other servant, a wicked servant, will be cut into pieces, put with the hypocrites and the unbelievers, thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the kind of division that now Jesus 
Jesus addresses straightforward. And so that we're going to see it. Now, now stay with me here because this is a nuanced passage. In other words, what Jesus is saying requires you to think a little bit if you're going to get what he's saying. So with that said, let's jump in to this. Now, by the way, when it gets to be late in the morning and I'm still on the 49th and 50th verses, don't fret We'll move through the other ones rather quickly. Um, most of what we really want to see is in these first two verses. And what they mean, we really are going to have to take them apart. So let's look at there at verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth. What on earth does that mean? Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, we're going to have to take it apart and make sure we understand what each one of those words mean. But before we even do that, let me talk about the word ordering. Not the word ordering in English, because it follows a typical English sentence. uh, Subject, verb, object. But in Greek, the word ordering is, sometimes you think it's just willy-nilly. You know, the words are thrown everywhere. But it's very specific. They always order the words of the sentence to emphasize an aspect of the sentence. And so the first word in this sentence in Greek is the word fire. In fact, it reads something like this. It says, fire I came to cast upon the earth. That brings the focus on that word. So we're going to really dive into that. But before we do, let's take a look at the surrounding words following the English order. And we'll make sure that we understand what fire means when we get there. First of all, Jesus says, I came. Now, or the New American Standard, I have come. The good translation in both of those. But Jesus speaks, all of a sudden, we are right back into the cosmic initiative. Jesus coming to this planet. But when he says, I came, and then he expresses a purpose for which he came, it speaks of pre-existence. It speaks of a pre-existent purpose, which is exactly what we've been talking about all through the idea of the cosmic initiative. Jesus Jesus is expressing to us, telling us the reason or the purpose for which he came to this earth. Well, he actually says quite a few things. And we've looked at this very carefully over the last couple of months. There are many reasons that Jesus gives for his coming into this world. He came, as we said earlier, to destroy evil, not to make alliance with it, but to draw a separation from it. He came, as he said, to seek and save the lost so that they might no longer be lost. He also came to reveal the Trinity to us, the loving Father, the regenerating Holy Spirit, the redeeming Son. He also came to reveal the message of the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He came to secure our salvation by going to the cross. That was a pre-existent purpose of Jesus, to be a sacrificial, substitutional atonement. He came to lead a train of captives, captives to sin, free them from sin, to lead them back to heaven where he has prepared a place for them. Not that they can remain in the sin that they are in, but to take them out of that as if they were his bride. He came to reveal kingdom ethics, the standards by which we will all be judged. He came, as we just learned, to 
to, to let us know that servanthood is true greatness in the kingdom of God. Now here he says, I came to cast fire upon the earth. Dr. Sproul, always the wit, says in his uh, commentary, I doubt if someone were to ask you, well, why did Jesus come? I doubt that you would say Jesus came to cast fire upon the earth. Um, Very few pastors even want to preach on this message, much less saying that to people who ask you that question. But that is exactly what Jesus says. So that leads us to the word cast. Now that's somewhat of a violent word. That doesn't mean just to place. It means to throw down. Every time I use those words throw down, I think about Byron and the Friday night throw down or whatever those guys do, those wrestlers do when they throw each other on the ground. Well, that's kind of the idea that is here. It is the word that is used in Acts when Paul meets a storm that it descends, it, it, it casts down upon him. It is a a northeaster, this is what he says, but soon as the tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, threw down, uh, it, it is a violent, almost cataclysmic event that Jesus refers to when he says cast. He, he doesn't make this ref, reference, but when he starts talking about casting fire down upon the earth, I, I, I can't help but think of Sodom and Gomorrah where God rained fire and sulfur down upon those wicked um, cities. Or um, uh, old Elijah up on top of Mount Carmel when he called God's fire down upon that sacrifice and put the prophets of Baal in their place. So therefore, the casting down that Jesus is talking about is something that is violent, a fierce kind of a throwing down. What is he throwing down? Fire upon the earth. We'll come back to fire. What does he mean upon the earth? Well, when we think about that, fire coming down on the earth, usually what we think is fire coming down and burning up everything that it touches right here on earth, the physical planet. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the people who live on the earth, the fire that he is calling down upon them, upon uh, that he is saying that he is casting upon the earth, is fire that he is casting not upon the earth itself, but upon the people who live on the earth. Which brings us to what does he mean by fire? What kind of fire is Jesus saying? I, because just after this, he's going to say, I, I literally can't wait. I wish it was already kindled. I, I wish it was already here. What kind of fire is he talking about when he talks about the fire that's going to be cast down upon the earth? Well, Scripture speaks of fire in a multitude of different ways. One of the ways is Physically, physical fire is the same meaning in Greek as it is in English. It is the combustion of certain gases within materials that can be burned, that have those gases. And when the the temperature rises to a certain point, well, those fires, they kind of explode in it. And when the, the gases are gone, there's nothing left but soot in whatever it was that was burned up. Now, if Jesus is talking about that kind of fire, fire, he is talking about 
end of time fire, end of time judgment. Because after all, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, you remember what the, the sons of thunder said shortly after Jesus left uh, Galilee in the ninth chapter of Luke. And he turned his face towards Jerusalem. And the first little village that they came to was a Samaritan village. And because his face was set towards Jerusalem, they all rejected him. And James and John said, Lord, would you like us to call fire down from heaven and destroy all these people? Well, that's not what he's talking about, obviously, because if that, it would be very strange if he was talking about the annihilation, the destruction of all people, just like Noah's flood, except this time with fire. If he was saying, I can't wait until that's kindled, that would be a very strange thing for Jesus to say. Uh, He didn't seem to have that view of humankind. So we're not going to see it as that second coming kind of literal fire. So therefore, the fire that Jesus is talking about is figurative in nature. Now, figuratively, fire is referred to in a variety of ways in Scripture. One, it can be used to talk about the presence of God, that the the fire God is really there in the fire. Like, for instance, when the Holy Spirit came upon the people at Pentecost, tongues of fire appeared over them. It was like the Holy Spirit came as fire. Or the menorah that was in the temple that represented the presence of God in that fire. Sometimes fire is what we call a theophany, which is a physical manifestation of God. And he is, he is represented by the fire. Most famously, of course, was in Exodus 3, when Moses saw the burning bush. A bush that burned, but it didn't burn up because God was in the bush. He wasn't of the bush. Or also from the book of Exodus, that pillar of fire that would guide the children of Israel by night or protect their rear guard on certain occasions. Or the fire that came down upon Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law. All of those are theophanies of the presence of God. So maybe what Jesus is saying, I can't wait for God's presence to come on the earth, but that would be strange, wouldn't it? Because Jesus is God, and so it wouldn't be the presence of God that he was looking forward to. God's presence is already in the earth, in, in, in his person, in his divine nature. So I don't think it means the presence of God, but rather that it comes from God. And that leaves the most prolific use of the word fire in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, both figuratively. And that speaks of the judgment of God, the fierce wrath of God over our sinfulness. And I could spend the morning giving you different uh, uh, passages where fire is representing the fierce wrath of God, just a few of them, from Isaiah, for behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire from Amos. Boy, if you want to get a picture of God as fire, the fires of judgment, read Amos. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Also in the New Testament, fire is seen as the wrath of God in judgment. Peter says this, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction 
of the ungodly. So therefore, without question, what Jesus is saying here is that the reason that I came was to cast down God's judgment upon this earth. And I can't wait until it's kindled. Oh my goodness, did Jesus actually say that? Well, let's take this a little deeper and and, and let's ask ourselves, well, what are the properties of fire? When scripture speaks about fire in this way, the fires of judgment, what are the properties of that fire? Well, we see it's basically two things. Either fire destroys that which it comes in contact with, like when it burns up, or fire purifies that which it comes in contact with. And it depends on the nature of the substance as to whether or not the fire destroys or whether it, it purifies. Once again, there are many verses that speak of this. There are various substances that when they are exposed to the heat of fire burn up relatively quickly. John the Baptist said this in Luke, his winnowing for it, speaking of Jesus, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus used the same metaphor when he said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Once again, John the Baptist speaking. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And Jesus, once again, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burnt. Now it's important that we recognize something. Jesus and John the Baptist are not talking about chaff and weeds and trees and branches. We're talking about people. This is God's judgment and wrath upon people. And so regardless, when you have a group of people and the wrath of God pours upon them, we're talking about final judgment here. When that judgment occurs, that which can be burned will immediately be destroyed. It talks about God's judgment on those people who are sinful, which happens to be all of us. But there's another idea of fire. There's there's another way that fire is used. And when you have a substance like those I just discussed that burn up, well, it destroys them. But if you have a substance that doesn't burn up, something like silver or gold or other kinds of metals, it has a different effect. It has a purifying effect, a refining effect from the um, description of, uh, of metallurgy in Proverbs. Take away the dross from the silver. Those are the imperfections that float to the top. And the smith has material for a vessel. So you know the way this works. You heat up that metal until it becomes a liquid. And when it reaches a certain temperature, all of the imperfections will float to the surface. And they just scoop it off, leaving the pure metal behind. That's a refining or a purifying process. But again, we're not talking about metal here. We're not talking about silver and gold. What we're talking about is people. And so when we talk about the refiner's fire, when we talk about how that is used, we're talking about the impact that it has on people. Zechariah puts it this way. I will put this third, this third of the people, into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. 
Fire is also a symbol of the ultimate destination of evil. The, 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 it's a way of defining hell. Mark puts it this way. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And everyone will be salted with fire. It will be the final place of the devil and his minions, as Revelation tells us. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I wonder if in all of those figurative definitions of fire, if you picked something out. If you picked out something that occurs in each one of them. Because in each one of them, the fire, whether it is burning something or whether it is refining something, is in the process of division. It's a symbol of division. It's a symbol of separation. Fire is what separates the dross from the good metal. Fire is what separates the weeds from the wheat, what, from, from the, the wicked from the, the good in, in the way that Jesus discusses it. Malachi puts it this way, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, a picture of division when the day of the Lord comes. Paul talks about this Division, how some things are going to be destroyed and some things are going to be kept. And the test and the proving will be with fire. When he talks about ministries that are built upon Jesus in the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now, are you paying attention to what this means in the context of what Jesus said? Jesus says, I came for a purpose. The purpose that I came for is to cataclysmically have fire rain Upon the people of the earth, it is a fire of judgment that will destroy the wicked. It is a fire of refining that will separate the the bad behavior, the old ways from those that the Lord is preparing for himself. But in all of those, we have profound pictures of division that is brought about by judgment that then brings about division. Now stay with me. Don't, don't think I'm, you, you, might, you may think I'm going one direction with this, but I'm not. Okay, so just, just kind of hang in there. What do we know about this so far? Because that's almost unacceptable, isn't it? Isn't it unacceptable for us to think about Jesus as being delighted that fire is going to be brought down upon the earth? Look what he says at the end of that. He says, would that it were already kindled. I wish that this fire of judgment and division were already kindled, already lit. So what does that tell us about what he's talking about? Well, first of all, he's talking about a cataclysmic event, something that is, in a sense, violent. Secondly, he is talking about something that is still in the future, at least at the time that he's saying this. Something that has not occurred yet because he looks forward to the day. He longs for it. Thirdly, 
we see that in some way Jesus is the catalyst of this. Somehow he's in the middle of all of this, and that becomes very evident in the next verse. And then fourthly, it is something that will have a profound impact on the people of the earth. Now, with all those things in our minds, can we come to any conclusion yet about what Jesus might be saying when he says, I came to cast fire upon the people of the earth? Well, first of all, as I said earlier, I think it's very clear Jesus is not talking about the second coming. He's not talking about final judgment. He is not talking about physical fire coming and burning everybody up on earth. Like, like Noah's flood did in the old days. Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem in his time of, uh, of a triumphal entry, he wailed, he mourned over the fact that his people were recalcitrant. I didn't see joy in him that the lost remained lost and rejected him. So that's not what Jesus is talking about. What he is talking about is that he is looking forward to God's fierce wrath being poured down upon man's sinfulness. Now, this would be no different than any of the other Old Testament prophets who were warning the people that God's wrath is coming, that God cannot abide sinfulness. He is too pure to look upon iniquity. Jesus would be saying the same thing if indeed he were not talking about the wrath of God being focused not on the people of the earth first, but before it gets to them, focused on him and him alone. That's what he's saying. He says, I cannot wait. I wish that the fire of God's judgment was already kindled because I must be baptized. That's what he says next. That's where he leads it. That's where he puts himself in the center of this. Look what he says in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I have a baptism that I must be baptized with. Now, he uses the word baptism metaphorically, figuratively. He's already been baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. He doesn't need to be baptized with water. Again, he's talking about another kind of baptism. What he is actually talking about, brothers and sisters, is baptism in the wrath of God. God's wrath will be poured down upon him, and he will be inundated with it. He will be submerged in it. He will, he will experience the fullness of God's wrath. Dr. Sproul puts it this way in his commentary. He says, the fire of the Father's wrath would not merely touch Jesus or harm him a little bit or singe his hair. No, all of God's wrath that should be poured out on every one of his people for their sin would be poured out on Jesus instead. Jesus was looking towards the cross, the most vicious expression of divine wrath that we find anywhere in Scripture. And you see, that's exactly what Jesus is looking forward to. He is looking at the cross. That's the moment when the wrath of God, the fire of God will be kindled. And it will be against the sinful nature of humanity. But the one to pay the price for that will not be humanity. Those who deserve to pay that price. It will be funneled. It will be focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. And in those three hours of holy darkness, he will experience the punishment for the sins of those he came to save. The sins of those 
who have put their trust in him. And that's why Jesus says, I am deeply distressed. How deep is my distress until it's accomplished? That word distressed is a word that speaks of an intense internal turmoil. Paul uses it in Philippians when he says that I'm just, I'm torn apart. I want to leave and go and be with Jesus, but I need to stay and minister to you. And and my insides are just all in turmoil. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing. He's not saying that he's experiencing anxiety. That would be something, wouldn't it? He just recently has said to his disciples, hey, be anxious for nothing. And then here he is being anxious about the cross. That's not what it means. Because to be anxious about the things that we talked about was to not trust in God's providence. Jesus knows God's providence. He's distressed over taking on the sins of the world and what he is going to have to suffer when he goes to the cross. He knows what he is looking at. This is a pre-existent supposition. He understands that he is indeed, excuse me, he is indeed the sacrificial, substitutional atonement. And so therefore, he is distressed until it is accomplished. I love that word, actually. One of the reasons that Greek is so nice is because that's the root of the word that Jesus uses in John when he finally comes to the end of all this. He looks up and he says, to tell us die. It's over. It's finished. It's paid for. And this is the same word. He's saying, I cannot wait. I am in such distress until I can say it is finished. And then it'll be done. The victory will be won. Sin and death will be destroyed. And therefore, I can lead my train of captives back to the ones I have who sent me to save them. Brothers and sisters, this is the profound nature of what Jesus says. He's the key. He's the preeminent one. You can't take Jesus out of salvation. He is the absolute dis, dis, center of all things. And notice something, that because the, the funnel, the wrath of God, is going to not be brought upon the people so that they are destroyed, the wrath of God is going to be brought upon Jesus while he hangs on that cross. And because the wrath came upon him, and he paid the penalty for the sins, then he becomes the most important, either belief or non-belief. He's the dividing line. He becomes the greatest division in all of humanity. You either believe in Jesus or you don't believe him, but there's no other way that you are going to escape the wrath of God other than a surrender and a belief in Jesus Christ. That is what he's meaning when he says, I am looking forward to, I'm in distress until the fire of God comes upon me. And that is the reason that he immediately goes in and he starts talking about division. And he makes this extraordinary statement in verse 51. When he says, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Do you think, when he he says that, you could translate, do you suppose? And he's talking to his disciples and those who are listening. Obviously, if if you ask a rhetorical question like that, do you think? And then he immediately answers it, no, this isn't it. So basically he's saying, don't think. 
But he wouldn't say that in the way that he said it unless this was the general impression. In other words, typically, when you asked anyone there, including the disciples, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth, what would their answer be? Yep, I believe that you did. Because that's what the rabbis have been teaching me. Well, you see, the problem and the reason Jesus says this, because, I mean, first of all, how can he say this? I mean, isn't he the Prince of Peace? Didn't we read this in the, several times during Christmas from Isaiah? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is he not the Prince of Peace? Did he not ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is the animal of peace? Did he not continue there in Isaiah of the increase of his government and of peace? There will be no end. The psalmist says of the Messiah, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. Over and over again, we get the idea, the scripture teaches that Jesus is indeed, the reason he came is to bring peace. How can he therefore now say, I didn't come to bring peace? Well, the problem lies in the definition of the word peace. You see, that's what's happened. There are two definitions of peace in the Roman world, in the Greek world in those days. There's the Hebrew idea of peace. And we've talked about this over and over again over the years. The Hebrew idea of peace, shalom, is peace with God. It is reconciliation with God. It is the removal of the enmity with God. It is so that the, the God who is perfect and holy can look upon you without destroying you because you're not perfect and holy. And so the reconciliation is exactly what Jesus came to accomplish. That's what he just said. I can't wait until I take the punishment. Whoa. I take the punishment. I'm getting too animated here. I take the punishment for the sins that you have committed. I'm looking forward to that because that is the wrath that was meant for you that I will accept. He's not saying I didn't come to reconcile you with God. What he's saying is I didn't come with the Greco-Roman version of peace. Because the Greco-Roman version of peace is absence of conflict. If there is no war, you have peace. If there is no contention, you have peace. If everyone tolerates everyone, if everyone condones everyone's behavior, if everyone is perfectly satisfied with what everyone else is doing, then that's the Greco-Roman view of peace. And any contention destroys the peace. That's not what Jesus came to do. And that's what he says. I did not come to bring that kind of peace. Rather, I came to bring Division. Wow. He says, I mean, that word, I mean, come on, we can't get around this word. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Division is a strong word. And it doesn't mean to just divide things. It doesn't mean to separate them into two parts. Here's what the Greek dictionary says. Division into partisan and contentious units. Dissension. Disunity. In other words, it's to divide things into two parts that will then be at odds with each other. No dividing, no no melding between the two, a line between them. And they will be in contention with each other. That is what division means. And in fact, if we go back to the Greek dictionary and the definition of the word fire, 
the dictionary that I use, as most of them do, they will, they will give you the nuances of the word. In other words, it means this and this verse, it means that and that verse. Well, talking about verse 49 of Luke 12, this is what it says. It seems in the context where it is now found to refer to the fire of discord. The fire of division, the fire of separation. That's the reason Matthew says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to bring war. I came to bring spiritual war. There is a division. And brothers and sisters, this is the great division. We need to get this. We need to understand this. There is the division between those who believe in Jesus Christ and those who don't. There's no middle ground. The middle ground is created by the devil. It is not. The the line between believing in Christ and not believing in Christ is spiritually defined and infinitely thin. There is no middle ground. You are either a believer. You have either surrendered to him. You have either picked up your cross to follow him or you have not. You have either professed him before men or you have not. That is a dividing line. There is no middle ground between it. And that is because Jesus is the one who took the penalty for your sins while he was on that cross. You either believe in him, accept him as Savior, accept him as Lord, or you don't. And if you don't, you will suffer the very same uh, wrath of God that he took for you. That's why he's central. That's why he's the most important figure in all of human life. You cannot take Jesus out of the whole context of salvation. And you can't say that for God to pour his wrath down upon his own son is child abuse. That's blasphemy. Because it's at the very center of God's redemptive plan. And if the church is going to be the church, Christians are going to be Christians. We've got to make sure that that's what we Teach. Jesus didn't come to say we're all going to get together, put our arms around each other and sing Kumbaya. He came to say that there is a division and the church's job is to present the division and say, please come on this side. Please accept Christ as your Savior or else you're going to face the wrath of God. Now, Jesus puts this in the strongest language when in these next verses he talks about this division. Look back in the 52nd verse. For now, for from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Division within the family. Now, I realize that this doesn't mean as much to us as it meant to the people Jesus was talking to at this time. Unfortunately, one of the great tragedies of modern Western culture is the disillusion, the, the dissolution of the family unit. One of Satan's temporary, but certainly one of his great victories right now is the destruction of the family, the redefining of what a family is. But not so in Jesus' time. When Jesus, at this time, the family was the building block of society. It was the fabric that held society and government and countries together. If you took the family and divided it, you're dividing the very essence of society. So for Jesus to talk about the family being divided by him, was radical beyond what we can comprehend. That's what he says. 
He says, I didn't come to bring peace to, to, to keep that, that feeling of tranquility within a family. I came to divide them. There are going to be three who accept me and two who don't. Or there are going to be two who accept me and three who don't. And that is the dividing line. It, it is not family against family. It is those who trust Jesus as Savior and those who don't trust Jesus as Savior. This is the ultimate dividing line. And even families will be divided by it. But... There's one other thought that flows from this that I want you to see that, once again, the the, the people who talk about this universalism, this all-inclusiveness of the church, the the, let's put down our doctrine, let's put down our beliefs, let's accept everybody into the church without questioning whether their sinful nature is, is against what God has called them or not. One thing that they miss is the fact that there, there's, there, there's a unity that Scripture speaks about, but it's all on this side of the decision. It's all on this side. In other words, when three people accept Christ and two don't, there's a new unity between those three people. When two people accept Christ and three don't, there's a new unity between those two people. And they're adopted into a much bigger family. A huge family, the family of Christ, because they are now able to be called the children of God. Not born of the flesh, not born by humans, but born by the Spirit of God. And they become adopted into the family of Christ. And there's a brand new family, a brand new unity. And this is the kind of unity that, unfortunately, those who don't get this don't see. So you can see the progression, can't you? From judgment to division, from division to unity. That, that, that's where so much is misunderstood. So let, let me see if I can wrap this up for you. First of all, w- w- uh, hopefully I've made it clear that when Jesus said, I cannot wait for the fire of God's wrath to be kindled and judgment to be brought upon the earth, he's talking about the, the, the judgment that would fall on him. He's talking about the sins that he would pay for of those who put their trust in him. He's talking about the sins of the elect. He is talking about those three hours of holy darkness that he spent on the cross, that he experienced the wrath of God in its fullness for each and every one of your sins and my sins if we put our trust in him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That is the reason you cannot remove the sacrificial substitutionary atonement from Christianity because it was there on the cross that judgment was satisfied. It was there on the cross that propitiation, the payment for sins was satisfied. It was there on the cross where expiation The removal of my sins from myself was satisfied. And Jesus, when he came, said, I came for this purpose. I knew it before I ever left my home in heaven. I came so that I could die on a cross with your sins upon me. Now, will you believe in me? Will you pick up your cross and will you follow me? That, that, that's the, the, the judgment. But judgment leads to division. But in between is something that I haven't discussed. In between is a decision. You, you see, decision leads to division. No decision maintains the status quo. So you're, you're not going to be divided 
that family of five. You're not going to be divided out of that family for not making a decision for anything. You're already part of the family. You're already lost in your sinfulness. You're already part of this world. Your master is already the devil and his minions. And so therefore, you don't have to make a decision about that. You're perfectly good there as far as Satan is concerned. But when you make a decision for Jesus Christ, that leads to division. That is the kind of vision. That's why it is unacceptable, my dear brothers and sisters. It is unacceptable for the world to act like there is no... I'm sorry. It is unacceptable for the church to act like there's no division between those who accepted Christ as Savior and those who have not. The scripture is filled with references. I mean, I I can give you a hundred, but let me just give you a few. If I can find it. Um, from the Psalms, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. First Peter puts it very clear. I don't know if you can put it any more clearly than Peter does. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be set apart, for I am set apart. You shall be divided from evil because I am divided from evil. You shall have nothing to do with that entire life that used to be yours because I have nothing to do with it and I have called you and pulled you out of that. And for you to go back as a church and begin to think that we can reach the culture and be relevant if we act more like them than our Lord, we have completely got it backwards. Because when God calls people out of darkness... He's leading him to the light. And if the church looks as much like the darkness as the darkness, how are they going to find the light? We need to be the lighthouse on the hill. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who never really was one for mincing words, put it this way. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Can that be any clearer? We are called out of the world. We are called to be set apart. We are called to be separate. Does that mean we turn up our noses and we build ourselves ivory towers? Does that mean that we have nothing to do with the sinful world? Of course not. Otherwise, Jesus would have taken us home when he saved us. But he wants us here in the sewer to find the rest of his sheep. Who don't know that they're sheep. They still think they're wolves. And he left us here to shine the light. I mean come on. What did he call you to do? Be a city on the hill. Don't put your light under a basket. Let it shine in the darkness. Be the lighthouse. Showing the way to safe harbor. Don't go out into the darkness of the storm. Because then you're with the people who are lost. You need to be the light shining. To tell people how to get out of that. That is what he is called the church to do and within that within that body within that group that very specific group now all of a sudden there's perfect unity the unity that is discussed over and over again that is hijacked is the unity within the body of Christ once again Paul puts it this way in Romans so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another to the Galatians he famously puts it this way there is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So let me leave you with this and sort of make a transition into our time of communion. For the church to feel that in order to be relevant, we, we, we have to tolerate, condone, be delighted in, make no distinction of the sins of the culture, is to do the culture the most egregious harm. You know, I, I hear it all the time, people saying, oh, I didn't want them to feel like they were outside of the group. I didn't want them to feel alienated. Well, I'm sorry, you want them to feel alienated. The last thing that you want to do is for an unbeliever to feel comfortable with their place against a holy God. You want them to know that they're not part of the family of God. You want them to know that they are outsiders. Because you want them to recognize that the only way that they are going to be part of the family of God is by putting their trust in Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean we walk around with our noses in the air. It doesn't mean we build these ivory towers. It doesn't mean that we look down upon people and are judgmental against people. No, what it means is we get down into the trenches and we fight. But we show the light of Christ in the trenches. We show the love of Christ in the trenches. And we show something that they cannot simply comprehend, which is our love for each other. You see, that's what Jesus said. He says, they will know you're my disciples by the way that you love each other. Show them a difference. Show them what's different in the church as opposed to the world. Don't show them that the church is just like the world. Show them that there's a whole new life, a whole new creation, a whole new directive, a whole new perspective. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, this communion that we're going to take is so representative of everything Jesus said here. We take these elements, the bread to represent the body that he sacrificed. We take the fruit of the vine to represent the blood that he spilled. That's the judgment. That's what he experienced on the cross. We are are celebrating that. We are remembering the sacrifice that he made for us when he hung on that cross. That's one of the reasons we take these elements. But you may have noticed every single time that I give uh, this or I administer this, I warn you. Don't take this in an unworthy manner. Paul warns you that you, take, that you bring judgment upon yourself if you do so because this is not something that is designed for non-believers to take. This is for disciples. This, this isn't something that we all get together and I don't want you to feel bad because I'm having communion and you're not having communion. It is rather to say, my dear friend, you can have communion with Christ Drop your arrogance. Drop your pride. Turn to Him. Confess your sins. Repent. Surrender your life to him and he will save you. And then gloriously he will lead you to this table to take this communion with him. And then it will mean something. Otherwise it's simply a farce. So as we take this communion in just a moment, remember that. Remember that Jesus came and paid the ultimate price. He did not just hang on that cross and spend his time suffering a physical death. Fire of God's wrath poured upon him for your sins. And when you take this, it means that you profess Jesus as your Savior. The one who died for your sins. Paid the price that you should pay. And when we take this, it is a a time of, of, of union. But it is a time to glorify Christ for what he has done. With that said, let's prepare our hearts now for communion and ask him. 
for a special blessing in it. Pray with me. Dear Lord, there are so many misconceptions. They range everywhere from error, misconceptions, to out-and-out heresy that concern these things. But Lord, we do know something that you made very clear here, that your time on the cross of experiencing the wrath of your Father was done for me. And it's done for those who are going to gather at this table to take these elements. That it was not your sin, it was ours. And that that judgment was experienced by you. And if we choose to follow you, it's, it is not good enough that we simply make a profession of faith and that, you know, we consider ourselves to be saved. You're, you're establishing a kingdom here. You're establishing the kingdom of light in the midst of darkness. And so that's what you want us to be, is the light of the world, even as you said when you were here. Lord, I pray that you will bless our understanding. If there's anyone here or within the sound of my voice that does not know you, has not professed you, does not has not surrendered their life to you, Lord, that they would recognize that unless they take what you did on the cross for them, they, they will suffer it themselves. They will suffer it one day. And I can just pray that not a single person here would go through that. Lord, we give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.